0: That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know.
1: Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. And today is the conclusion of the Sony story. An epic, if ever there was one, and just a peek behind the curtain, the last couple of episodes I recorded were from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, episodes one and two are recorded in one go in the studio, and then I had a whole bunch of trips to different locations to give presentations, and I ended up uh, putting off recording till today, which is a couple of weeks later. So if I sound remarkably different from parts one and two, that's why. So let's talk about Sony, and let's kind of bring ourselves up to current day. I promise that as we get closer to current day, I I get less and less detailed about dates, because otherwise there'd be four parts to this, and I think that's stretching it even for me. So, in the last episode, I concluded the show by talking about Sony's battle in the VCR wars, uh, but during that same time, the company was doing some other stuff. So, some of this is going to overlap with the end of the previous episode. Back in 1970, Sony became listed on the New York Stock Exchange. It also opened up Sony in uh, Germany. It was eventually called Sony Deutschland uh, in 1980. Sony would also open businesses in Spain and France and other nations over the next few years and would become a truly global company. So this was a big move. Remember, this whole company started out as a small Japanese organization and now had become a a multinational, global entity. 1979 also saw the introduction of one of the most iconic Sony products of all time, one of their most successful products, the Walkman. Now, officially it was called the TPS-L2, and it lacked a recording function. It could play, and it could fast-forward and rewind and stop, and that's about it. But... Some people were saying, well, because there's no record function, it's not going to sell very well. But it ended up becoming an insanely popular product. And it launched an entire new product line of portable tape recorders, or really tape players, because they couldn't record. The company also introduced lightweight headphones, very important along with the invention of the portable tape player, And these lightweight headphones were called the uh, MDR-3 or H-AIR, hair headphones. See, Sony knew that if they were to rely upon traditional big clunky headphones, no one was going to buy a portable tape player. It would just not be practical. So they had to invent very lightweight headphones that would work with their new product. So they did, and that together they ended up being a big success. Now, the next line or the next um, evolution of the portable tape player was the WM2. This is the traditional, the classic Walkman we think about, which launched in 1981. This was the one that really hit it big. They Sony knew from the TPS-L2 that they were on to something. But it wasn't until the WM2 in 1981 the Walkman 2, that they really realized that this was a huge hit. It was smaller than its predecessor and also had some other features to help improve performance quality. And it became the standard portable cassette player. So essentially, you either had a Walkman or you had some sort of uh, portable tape player that was essentially a Walkman knockoff. That's really what it boiled down to. Also in 1982, Sony introduced the MDR-E252, which it doesn't really have a very catchy name. But they were the first in-ear headphones, or earbuds, as we would call them. Again, that's a standard that you see everywhere today, but at the time was completely unheard of. And uh, I really can't stress how big a game-changer this was in the field of music. Suddenly you could take your music with you, you didn't have to have a tape deck in your car. Most cars didn't have tape decks. In fact, some of them still had 8-track players. Um, you didn't have to carry around a big clunky tape recorder that had a, one lousy speaker, so you would get everything in mono. You could actually have stereo cassettes played in a portable cassette player. You could do things like go jogging or workout, stuff that we take for granted now, because we can do all this stuff with our phones these days, or our MP3 players if you're still sporting one of those. But back in 1982, that was unheard of. It was huge, and it really changed the way people interacted with their technology. In fact, I would argue that the Walkman is kind of the beginning of this portable technology craze that has carried up through mobile phones, smartphones, handheld gaming devices, all of that sort of stuff. I think the Walkman kind of proved that people really wanted technology they could take with themselves uh, on the go. And so Sony was a pioneer, not to be confused with Pioneer, the sound company, in this space. In 1980, Sony engineers began to work on developing a video camera recorder using a new type of semiconductor, new at that time, called the charge-coupled device, or CCD. Uh, It's something that's still an important component in many, but not all, digital cameras. There's actually a couple different uh, sensors that are used in digital cameras. Some use CCD and some use others. This camera was meant to record directly to cassette in the camera itself. That was also huge. In 1983, Sony launched the BMC-100 camera, which recorded straight to Betamax tape. It a larger camera, like one of those shoulder-mounted type cameras. The colloquial term for this type of video camera recorder is the camcorder, meaning that you use the same gadget to both shoot the video and record the video, and again, this is something we take for granted today, but before camcorders, the way it would work is you used a video camera to, to convert light into a signal, which then you would send over a cable to a recording device, which really limited how you could use cameras, right? A video camera. You couldn't just take a video camera out on the go. It had to have a cable attaching itself to some sort of storage device that would record the signal to a medium, like magnetic tape, and that would also have to have its own power supply. So, creating a camcorder that could do all of this in one unit was a big deal. Now, uh, the BMC-100 cost $1,500 at launch in 1983, and I adjusted that for inflation so in today's dollars, that's around $3,600. So twice, more than twice as much what it went for in 1983. So in 1983, it cost $1,500. If you were to buy it today, it would be like buying something for $3,600. And it was large and bulky, but switching to the CCD system is what would allow Sony to make things a bit smaller. Sony's team was able to create a smaller camcorder using CCD technology. But it wouldn't be until 1985 before Sony could market one to consumers. And it was the 8 millimeter camcorder called the CCD V8. Now, one of the reasons for the delay was not purely technological. Sony wanted to work with other companies to establish a standard format. So that way they wouldn't enter into another VCR-like battle on the video camera front. They were already fighting Betamax versus VHS, And they thought, well, we don't really want to have 30 different video cassette formats out there because that'll just confuse the marketplace. It'll mean that consumers will get very upset because they can't just buy what they want to buy. They would be forced to buy all in one system. And if that system ultimately failed, then it's wasted money. In other words, if I buy Sony's camera, and it means I have to buy Sony's player in order to watch the cassettes that I record... And then Sony were to go out of business, I would never be able to buy more cassettes for the player I have. I'd never be able to shoot more footage and I would be stuck with technology that was obsolete. So in order to avoid that, Sony said, let's all get together and establish a standard. So that way, no matter who does well or who doesn't do well, people will still be able to buy this technology with confidence. They won't, they won't hold back out of fear that a company might go under and you'd be stuck with an obsolete piece of equipment. Pretty forward thinking. Uh, As a result, Sony and 126 other companies collaborated on the 8mm video conference to hash things out. Now, I don't want you to think that this charge-coupled device was super advanced. I mean, it was definitely a big step forward at the time, but it's pretty primitive compared to today's standards. The CCD in Sony's camera had a resolution of just 250,000 pixels. Not megapixels. 250,000 pixels. Megapixel means million, essentially. Million pixels. The color captured by CCDs was vibrant, but the resolution was fairly primitive. Now, you're looking at a much smaller screen, so it didn't matter as much. You know, there weren't many people who had very big TVs back in the early 80s. So even if you're showing it on a television... Chances are, the resolution wasn't that big a deal because you weren't looking at a huge screen, and the smaller screen meant that the lower resolution didn't show up as much. Switching back over to audio, so in 1979, we had to backtrack just a bit here, Sony partnered with another electronics company, Philips, and Sony and Philips worked together to create a new medium for music, and that was the Compact Disc, or CD. CD. Now, earlier storage media had relied on analog methods, such as the grooves in a vinyl album or the magnetic information stored on a cassette tape. But compact discs were to store information optically, digitally, in bits, zeros and ones, on a shiny disc. A laser would read the information off the disc, and a converter would change the digital information into an analog signal to be played back on speakers. You have to have your analog speakers. Philips and Sony worked to create a standard so there wouldn't be competing formats in the marketplace. And originally, the CD was only meant for sound files. The engineers didn't intend for this to be a storage medium for all sorts of data. They just thought, oh, this is kind of like a vinyl album is for, for music. So it came as a bit of surprise to them when engineers began to use CDs to store computer data and not just music. That was a big change, and uh, really it excited the engineers quite a bit because they just they did, had not anticipated that. Now, the original goal when they were coming up, when Sony and Philips were co- uh, cooperating in order to create the CD, was to create a disc that would be capable of storing one hour's worth of music on it. Now, later, they decided one hour wasn't sufficient. They wanted to go up to 74 minutes, so 60 minutes to 74 minutes. So what was the reason? Why why go from 60 minutes to 74? Well, the story is, and I cannot verify that this is 100% correct, but this is how it's reported. The story is, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is 74 minutes long, and they felt that a CD should be able to hold the entirety of Beethoven's Ninth on one side. So CDs can hold 74 minutes of music because of Beethoven. Now, that also meant that it dictated how big the disks had to be because it wasn't like they could cram more information on the same space. They actually used the physical space of the disk to encode information onto it. So to go from 60 minutes to 74 minutes meant that the disks actually had to be physically a little larger than they originally had had planned on being. So you could say that the reason a standard CD is the size that it is, is because of Beethoven. And I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, not only because I'm a technology nerd, but also because I happen to like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony an awful lot. That's the one that has Ode to Joy in it. In 1982, Sony introduced the world's first CD player, the CDP-101. 1982. I was actually surprised to learn the CD player dates all the way back to 1982, probably because I didn't get my first CD player until I was a teenager. So we're talking maybe 1988, 1989. So it had been out for quite some time, which is actually a good thing, because when CD players first came out, they were pretty expensive. Uh, and so CDP-101, it sold for about $730 when it went on sale in 1982, Today that would be around one thousand eight hundred dollars. So you'd be spending the equivalent of just under two grand to buy just a CD player when it first came out. Uh, that's a lot of money. It was reason why I did not have a CD player until much later when the prices had gone down dramatically. But I wasn't even aware that CDs were a thing in the early '80s. To me, music was all vinyl and cassette tape, mostly cassette tape at that point. Um, If I went into a music shop, there'd be a a vinyl section and then a larger tape section. And it was years before I started seeing CDs pop up. And then, of course, eventually they replaced everything else. Now, these days, we're starting to see vinyl come back uh, as sort of an answer to the all-digital model that we've been in for the past couple of years. Anyway, 1982, we get that first CD player. About a month after the CDP-101 launched, Philips would launch its own CD player. But it also contained some components that were designed and built by Sony. So there were even Sony parts in the second CD player to ever launch, even though it was under the Philips brand name. In 1984, Sony introduced the world's first portable CD player. So just two years after the first CD player comes out, Sony introduces the portable one. It was called the D500 CDs were still very young in 1984, however, and it would take a few years for the format to really gain traction on the more established cassette market. So while the portable model was out, uh, CDs just had not quite caught on in a big way yet. Not in 1984. It would take a couple more years. It was already pretty clear that they were going to be a strong competitor against cassettes and vinyl, but the cassette tape market was just so entrenched at that point that it took a while for CDs to undermine it. We're going to get back to more about Sony in just a minute. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation.
1: Compatible device and vehicle required. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or.
0: No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Alright. We're back, and now let's get into something really juicy. We're at 1989. That's the year that Sony would acquire Columbia Pictures Entertainment and would rename it Sony Pictures Entertainment Incorporated in 1991. Now, Columbia Pictures Entertainment also has a very long history that predates the founding of Sony. You remember in the last episode I talked about CBS and how, when Sony purchased CBS Records, that that actually predated Sony itself, the company. Same is true with Columbia Pictures. Columbia Pictures was founded in 1918 as the cone brandt Cone Film Sales, or CBC Film Sales Company. It became Columbia Pictures in 1924. And, yes, I could do a full episode just about Sony Pictures inter- uh, Entertainment. No problem. It would... Be a full episode complete with drama, betrayal, triumph, tragedy. But you know what that would mean. 14 more Sony episodes, and I I think you guys would kill me at that point. But if you want me to do an episode or two about Sony Pictures specifically, please let me know. Send me a message. In the meantime, I'll give you kind of the Cliff's Notes version of what Sony Pictures is all about. So Columbia had changed hands several times before Sony purchased it. In 1982, Coca-Cola purchased the company. But then in 1987, Coca-Cola spun the company off, and then that was bought by TriStar Pictures to become Columbia Pictures Entertainment before Sony scooped it up. Now, some of the famous stuff Columbia Pictures made before Sony bought them included nearly 200 Three Stooges shorts, the company also distributed Mickey Mouse cartoons for Disney. Uh, it was also a player in the classic television world uh, through its division that was called Screen Gems. Because of Columbia, we got shows like The Monkees, I Dream of Jeannie, The Partridge Family, and Bewitched. Famous movies produced by the company include The Bridge Over the River Kwai, uh, Oliver, which is the musical adaptation of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens, Easy Rider, Stir Crazy, Stripes, Tootsie, The Karate Kid, Ghostbusters, the original version, and more. Sony spent $4.9 billion to buy the studio and millions more to get it up to speed. Besides Sony Pictures, the company also created another company to handle more arthouse-style cinema, and they called that one Columbia TriStar Pictures. And Sony spent another $4.8 billion in a leveraged buyout of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, or MGM Studio. Now this was also the division of Sony that was hit by the infamous hack in 2014, in which an enormous amount of data was stolen from Sony and distributed on the web, revealing company strategies, employee salaries, and more. So let's talk about this hack for a second. I know this is jumping to just a couple of years ago, but it relates to the entertainment branch of Sony. So a group called Guardians of Peace, or GOP, took credit for the hack. And they said that their purpose for the hack was because Sony had an upcoming film at the time called The Interview. And if you don't remember what The Interview is about, it's a comedy about two uh documentary or slash filmmaker types, an actor and a director, who get pulled in to become assassins. Their job is to assassinate North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un. And some security experts said that the attack on Sony originated from North Korea, or agents working on behalf of North Korea, and that this was all politically motivated. That in other words... North Korea was insulted that this movie was going to become a thing, and so set hackers on Sony, who then penetrated Sony's security, ransacked the databases for tons of information, including things like people's salary info, and then leaked it to the media. Now, North Korea denies these allegations and says that while it thinks the hackers were brilliant and wonderful people... They did not actually tell the hackers to do this. So North Korea is saying, hey, it wasn't us. We think it's awesome, but it wasn't us. Now that's not the only opinion about the hack. There are other security experts who think perhaps it was not North Korea or agents working on behalf of North Korea that perpetrated the hacks. Some people say, no, it was probably someone from the inside who already had access to all of this stuff. They didn't break into Sony's database they had access to it because they were an employee for Sony, and for some reason they got upset at Sony. You know, maybe something happened. Uh, Maybe they were let go, but still had access to Sony's systems, or maybe there was some other perceived slight, and that, as a result, they stole a ton of information and then leaked it to the press, saying that, you know, maybe that was really like a a kind of internal revenge story, and not an external hacker at all. And then Either someone else came forward to claim responsibility, a.k.a. Guardians of Peace, or the person on the inside who did all the stealing created Guardians of Peace in the first place just to kind of cover the tracks. Uh, We don't really know the answer to this. There are a lot of security experts who say it was definitely North Korea or someone working with North Korea. There are some who say, I don't see evidence of that. I think it was an inside job. Uh, I was more of an inside job kind of person believing that narrative more than the North Korean narrative. But honestly, completely objectively, I do not know what is the truth. I do not know if it was, in fact, a North Korean hacker or someone working under the direction of North Korea or if it was an inside job. Uh, I have no way of knowing. And the only reason I lean toward inside job was just that uh, the security experts I follow, many of whom were... You know, talking about this at length when it happened, thought that that was the most likely of the uh, possibilities. But honestly, it could be either way. And I have no way of knowing. Very interesting story, though. I would love to do a full story about the Sony hack that goes into deep detail But to be perfectly honest, I don't have a whole lot more information on it. I would have to see if I could get a security expert in to talk about the investigation. It may very well be that there's some evidence that has a much more definitive answer to who perpetrated this. And I'm just not aware of it. Entirely possible. But let's get back to the main timeline. So Sony, that, that hack caused Sony endless amounts of grief. There were plans that were revealed that Sony had not made public the the salary things caused a lot of issues internally. It was a huge demoralizing force within Sony Pictures, uh, and it the ramifications of that are still being felt today. All right, back to the main timeline. This makes us jump back to 1990. Sony launched an HD capable television set with a 16 by 9 ratio. Now, televisions before 1990. I'm sure a lot of you remember this, maybe not all of you. Uh they their standard ratio was 4 by 3, meaning that, you know, you're talking about uh width versus height. So 4 units by 3 units or 16 units by 9 units. Uh and then you, you know, by figuring out the the width, you know what the height's going to be because of this ratio. So 16 by 9 is what we usually call widescreen, right? That's the standard widescreen. There are also 16 by 10. There you know, it's not 16 by 9 is not the only standard out there, but it's the most common one. Now, in 1990 Sony launched its 16 by 9 ratio HD capable TV. It was a 36-inch television called the KW-3600 HD. That was in 1990. However, it wouldn't be until 1993 and the digital HDTV grand alliance that HD signals would become more common and standardized. Uh, you can tell that companies were hoping that 3D technology would follow a similar path as HD, and the idea is get the technology that can play this stuff out there first, and then hope that the standard you create is compatible by the time it actually starts to perpetuate out in the wild. So we've seen that with HD, and we're seeing it now with 2K and 4K video. They were hoping for the same thing with 3D, but that did not happen. I think consumers, by and large, have rejected 3D television for multiple reasons. Uh, But the same thing was true of HD at the time. They, They weren't sure that this was going to become the new standard. They were pushing for it. But if you were an early adopter of HD televisions, in the very early days, there was, there was hardly anything for you to watch in HD. There was uh, like a cable channel that was broadcast on a lot of cable providers that gave very beautiful pictures of like sunrises and sunsets or ocean life. But it took a few years for HD signals to start broadcasting at a, at a high enough density where buying an HD television uh, had some returns on it. Otherwise, you just had a, an expensive, pretty TV that was showing standard definition, because that's all there was. Now, in 1993, while playing tennis, Akio Morita suffered a stroke. Uh, and sadly, from that moment until the end of his life, he would be bound to a wheelchair. And he would pass away at age 78 in 1999. So one of the the founding voices of Sony passes away uh, 78 years old in 1999. Sony also in 1993 formed a new company, Sony Computer Entertainment Incorporated, later rebranded as Sony Network Entertainment and later still as Sony Interactive Entertainment. And it would become a wholly owned subsidiary of Sony itself in 2004. This new branch of Sony was formed in partnership with the Sony Music Entertainment Japan division and focused on developing products for Sony's entry into home video games. They wanted to get into that market in uh, the early 90s because it was, it was ripe. It was one of those, it was starting to come, become really competitive again. And their first major product would come out in 1994. That was the original Sony PlayStation. Now, again, I could do another full episode or two or three about Sony Interactive Entertainment. I could even do one or two at least on the Sony PlayStation, and probably someday I will. But just like Sony Music and Sony Entertainment, Sony Pictures, uh, this series would go on forever if I included it at this point. So again, I'm going to give you the high points, and then later down the road, if you guys want to hear a full episode or two about Sony PlayStation or Sony Interactive Entertainment, I'll do it then. Here are the big points. Before the PlayStation, Sony had actually entered the console market through a partnership with Nintendo. That happened in 1988. Sony and Nintendo worked together to create the Super Disk CD ROM attachment for the SNES, or Super Nintendo Entertainment System. But there were some licensing issues and some other bureaucratic nonsense that prevented the Super Disk CD ROM attachment from ever being released. So Sony made it. But it never hit store shelves. So that project was a bust. But in 1991, Sony tried it again. This time they worked with Philips to help create the Philips CDI, which was a CD-based entertainment system, compact disc entertainment system. And that ended up being a commercial flop. It was competing against too many other systems, and the market was just so diluted that it didn't get any traction. It was also pretty expensive. Now, the original PlayStation, when it was in its original design, not the one that went to store shelves, but in development, in Sony, the original PlayStation could actually play SNES cartridges. It actually had a cartridge port as well as a CD drive. But Sony only made 200 of them. And then they decided to change the design. So they got rid of the cartridge port at that point. So those 200 were the only ones ever made that could play both PlayStation games and SNES games. Now, at the time where they took the cartridge port out, that's when the product became known as the PlayStation X or PSX. And it launched in December 1994 in Japan. The rest of the world would have to wait until the fall of 1995 for it to debut. Now, the original PlayStation's competitors... Included the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, the TurboGrafx-16, the Sega Genesis, and the Panasonic 3DO. And now we're talking about my childhood. I mean, I remember all of those systems coming out. I didn't own any of them. The only console I had owned, really, at that point, was an Atari 2600. And then the video game market crashed. And when the Nintendo came out, uh, my parents weren't so keen on spending a huge amount of money on buying yet another console. Uh, So, understandably. And I did not have a source of income to save up for such a console, so I would occasionally play SNES at a friend's house. And, uh, I would, it would, I think it wouldn't be until college before I really started playing PlayStation games. So, the PlayStation did very well in this market. Largely because it's Graphics quality and sound quality were so much better than most of the other systems out there. I think the Dreamcast could give it a real run for its money, but no one was supporting the Dreamcast, which is sad. I love the Dreamcast, by the way. Also, I love the PlayStation. I'm not particularly picky here. I'm not taking sides, but I am sad that the Dreamcast never really had the success that it deserved. But the PlayStation did really well. And it would eventually rise up to become Nintendo's chief rival at that time. Nintendo had been dominant with the Nintendo Entertainment System and Super Nintendo. But now the PlayStation was really challenging the company. Now, since then, we've had several evolutions of the PlayStation. And like I said, I could do a full PlayStation episode sometime in the future, but I'm not going to do one now. So I'm not going to go through every iteration of the PlayStation. We're up to PS4 now. We're actually at the second generation of PS4, uh, but I'm not going to cover all of those. So listen out for a PlayStation episode sometime in the future, and I will get into that story at that point. Back to Sony. In 1995, they released the first consumer digital video camcorder, the DCR-VX-1000. And that same year, the company established the Sony Communication Network Corporation. And as the name indicates, this is the branch of Sony that became an internet service provider. So now we've got Sony that is in charge of creating content, like Sony Pictures and Sony Music, and we also have Sony, the internet service provider, and we already have an early example of a potential conflict of interest, where a company is both providing internet service and the stuff that could be delivered over that service. Um, Sony also participated in creating the standard known as the Digital Versatile Disc, or DVD. So Sony had a, a, a voice at the table when that standard was being created. In 1996, Sony launched the popular Cybershot brand of digital camera, still camera. Uh, this was the first digital camera I ever owned was a Cybershot. It was actually probably a Cybershot 2 or something. Probably wasn't the original, but I did own a Sony Cybershot. It was a pretty decent little digital camera. In 1999, Sony introduced the world to a robotic dog named Ibo. A-I-B-O. And that was the year that the Shirokia department store, the original home of what would one day become Sony, closed. and closed in January 1999. All right, we're in the home stretch. But before we get there, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. Working Remotely, Why wait? Go to att.com/incarwifi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required.
1: Across America, BP supports more than two hundred seventy-five thousand jobs to keep energy flowing jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No surprise here, but you know I
0: gotta have my devices when I travel. I can't fly without my portable chargers and noise-canceling headphones keeping me immersed, and I'd be lost without my smartphone. In a new place, it's my connection to the familiar. I rely on it to get directions around town. I use my smartphone to look up things to do or, most importantly, where to eat. In countries where I don't speak the language, my phone becomes a universal translator. And heck, it can double as a digital camera, giving me the opportunity to snap unforgettable pictures of the sights that inspire me and fill me with joy. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. A spirit of adventure lives inside of us. Nissan's SUVs have the capabilities to transform your spirit of adventure into actual rubber-meets-the-road into the wild, true-blue-real-life adventure. You just need a Nissan and a plan. Or better yet, just a Nissan. You can hop into a Nissan Rogue and discover what comes next. Don't worry, the Nissan Rogue has your back. Class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Just climb in and go. No need to connect your phone. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the new 2024 Nissan Rogue. No matter where you roam, you'll stay connected to home. Life is one huge adventure, and every day is a little one. No matter if the ride you're on is big or small, a Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada can elevate your adventure and push your limits to something new. Your next adventure is waiting for you. Get in a Nissan SUV and go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. All right, we're back and now it's the year 2000. On October 5th, 2000, Sony would partner with Pioneer, and unveil DVR Blue. Now, this is the technology that would eventually evolve into Blu-ray. On November 1st, 2000, Sony announced the Ultra Density Optical, or UDO, format, which was the blue laser optical format that, again, would become Blu-ray discs. In 2002, Sony would go all in on the new format, and now it's officially called Blu-ray. But also in 2002, a rival would arise and face off against Sony and the Blu-ray standard. And actually, it was a couple of them. It was Toshiba and NEC primarily. And Toshiba and NEC came up with a different format called HD-DVD. So here's the high-definition war, the, the standard beyond DVD. And we see another format war come out. Now remember, in the last big format war, Sony was backing Betamax. And the company lost. Betamax did not become the standard for home entertainment. VHS did. So I've done a full episode, actually a couple of them, about Blu-ray versus HD DVD. You might even remember that way back when we first started Tech Stuff, my co-host Chris Pallette and I had actually visited CES that year. That was 2008. That was the year when HD DVD pulled out of CES at the last minute leaving a big empty spot on the show floor. Essentially, that was when the HD DVD standard gave up the ghost. It had been a war from 2002 to 2008. Which one was going to become the standard? Was it going to be Blu-ray or was it going to be HD DVD? And for a while, HD DVD was, it looked like it was dominating, but eventually Blu-ray won out, and it is in many ways a superior format uh, when you get to certain technical specs. But we all know that it's not necessarily the best format that wins. Sometimes other elements will allow one product to win over another one. It doesn't necessarily mean that the one that won was the better product. In this case, I think Blu-ray really was, even though at the time I was kind of supporting HD DVD uh, because it was cheaper. When, when, like, those, those players and the formats were less expensive than Blu-ray. But again, like all technologies, if enough people adopt it over time, that technology becomes less expensive because of manufacturing improvements and other issues that uh, reduce the cost of producing the technology. So if you stick with it long enough and if enough people adopt it, prices come down. Um, both of those things are important for that to happen though. So. Blu-ray won out. Uh, this time, Sony would end up backing the, the successful format in the format wars. Back to 2001. Sony established the Sony Ericsson Mobile Communications branch. Today, it's just called Sony Mobile. So then they got into the cell phone industry. You know, they had already been in internet service providers. They had gotten into computers. They had gotten into televisions. Uh, you know they were, they were essentially branching out as much as they could and getting involved in as many different industries, especially in the electronics field, as possible. In 2003, Sony would actually introduce the Blu-ray disc player. In 2004, they introduced the first 4K LCD panel. Now, this was the first panel to actually meet 4K specifications, the ones that had been suggested by a consortium. Of try, that was trying to define what 4K would actually be. Sony made the first panel that actually met those specifications. Sony also would found another company in 2004, Sony Financial, which means, yes, Sony does, in fact, have a bank, along with several other financial services. So if you look at Sony, the company, the big company, and you look at the different businesses that Sony is in, they can be divided up into specific... Uh, disciplines or divisions. You've got financial, you've got music, you've got movies and TV, and you've got electronics. So you've got uh, a couple of different ones in entertainment. Um, actually, you could argue entertainment is music and movies together, and maybe instead of saying music and movies, say entertainment and then maybe Sony uh computers, like or computer games, video games. So you've got video games, movies and music. You've got electronics, and you've got this financial branch. Big, big divisions within Sony. Each one big enough to be its own company with its own subsidiaries. Now, in 2005, Sony would acquire uh, MGM, as I mentioned earlier. One other major event from that year, in 2005, Sony would name Sir Howard Stringer, CEO. Now, he was the first foreigner to run a major Japanese electronics firm. They – very unusual. Normally, Japanese businesses uh, end up electing Japanese leaders to be – to take over these big positions for multiple reasons. There are linguistic barriers and cultural barriers. It's just very different ways of doing business in Japan versus in other parts of the world. In fact, Sir Stringer ran into – or Sir Howard, I should say. You say Sir and then the first name. Sir Howard ran into this during his tenure as CEO. He ran into these these barriers between the way Westerners do business and the way um, uh, Japanese business owners do business. And it caused some friction. Uh, Sir Howard also focused very heavily on the entertainment side of Sony. And it's not a big surprise. He had previously been president of CBS Incorporated. And before that, he had worked on various CBS properties, so he came from that background. It was not a huge surprise that he would really focus on the entertainment side. And this was the era of Sony that saw things like the Spider-Man franchise launch again. That would be the um, Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. In 2007, Sony would move its headquarters to a new building in Japan called Sony City. At least that's what's nicknamed. And the company also released the first OLED television in 2007. In 2009, Sony would develop an authentication technology that maps the veins in your finger. It's called Mofira, M-O-F-I-R-A. And that's pretty cool, right? It's not just, it's not reading your fingerprint. It actually looks for how the veins in your finger, uh, how how they are aligned inside your finger. That's unique to you. So using a little near-infrared... You can look into a person's skin and see that network of veins. And since it's a unique uh, identifier to the individual, you can use it for authentication. Pretty cool. Also in 2009, Sony would unveil a new slogan for the company called Make Believe. Make period believe period. In 2010, Sony would open up the 3D Technology Center Now, Sony was just one of several companies that were really pushing for 3D television to become the next big definitive step in home televisions. And most consumers, like I said, resisted that trend. Here's the reason why television companies keep doing this kind of thing. You know, you might think, all right, well, first we got widescreen TVs and HD TVs. Then we got flat panel TVs. And then after that, uh, you know, once we got the HD TVs, we started to get things like 3D television, uh, even thinner television. Then we went 2K and 4K and some prototype 8K sets, uh, as well as curved TVs. And now we're talking about high dynamic range televisions. The reason you see these trends is that companies want to sell TVs, but TVs are tough to sell, right? You know, most of us don't buy a television and then the next year say, oh, there's a newer model with more features. I'm going to go buy a new TV because they're really expensive. Most of us can't afford to just keep upgrading our TVs regularly every couple of years. It's one of those purchases that you buy and then you pretty much use it until either it stops working or you're just like, no, it's we really need a new TV. So... Companies keep coming out with these new technologies as an incentive to get people to go out and buy new televisions. I mean, otherwise you don't have a business. But it has been tough going for 3D televisions. I know a few people who have said that they like them. I don't know any personally. None of my friends, as far as I know, actively use a 3D television. Some of them might own 3D-capable TVs. Um, I, there's one friend I have, she might actually have a 3d television that she uses as a 3d TV because she's, uh, kind of a, a techno geek on a level that is, uh, admirable. And she has a job where she can afford that kind of stuff. She's awesome, but I have not actually asked her if she has a 3d television or uses her 3d TV if she does have one. So yeah, uh, most of the folks I know, they, they didn't like the idea of a 3d television for multiple reasons. One of the big ones being... They didn't want to have to wear a special pair of glasses just to watch their television, not in 3D mode anyway, because it meant that you had to have an extra piece of equipment. That's another one that you could misplace. It makes it harder to like you have to track down where your, your glasses are. If they're active glasses instead of passive, you have to charge them. It's just a a, a level of involvement that a lot of television viewers just don't want. They would rather have the technology built into the television in such a way where you don't need an extra device or peripheral in order to enjoy it. Uh, and there are other reasons as well, I'm sure. But anyway, 3D tele Technology Center probably not seeing the success of some of the other divisions. Maybe they have some involvement with PSVR, which launched this year, um, in which case that could end up being a success. It's a little early to say right now. In 2010, Sony also introduced a new Cybershot camera, this time, uh, according to Sony. So the first Cybershot camera was all one word in Sony's literature. This is actual Sony literature I used for these notes. So the original still camera, Cybershot is one word. The 2010 version, on their materials, they have Cybershot hyphenated. I don't know why. But this Cybershot was the world's first digital still camera capable of recording full HD progressive video. So that's kind of cool. Also around this time, Sony began developing wireless communications technologies to allow various electronics to communicate at high speeds with each other. Uh, The goal here would be to cut down on cables, you know, have wireless transmission of data between your various components so that you don't have to have cables connecting them. In other words, imagine that you have a Blu-ray player, that connects wirelessly to your television. And so you don't have to hook the Blu-ray player up to the TV with a physical cable. It just beams the, the movie at a very high data throughput rate to the television that can then display it at Blu-ray resolutions. That's what they were really working on at that point. And I've seen some examples of HD versions of that. It gets tricky, though, because you have to deal with interference and just you know trying to get that much data through... Uh, you know, your wireless network, even if it's a wireless network just between two components, can be a real pain in the butt. Also in 2010, it was a big year for Sony. Uh, they introduced the first internet TV using Google TV or Android TV, and Sony would introduce an ebook reader that year in 2010. But the ebook reader didn't do so well. The Sony ebook reader was one of the big competitors to the Amazon Kindle when the Kindle came out. It was really kind of down to the ebook and the Kindle. And we know who won that one. Kindle won that one. In fact, Sony discontinued the production of ebook readers in 2014, though the company would continue to sell the units that they had in stock, but they wouldn't make any more of them. They were done. It was clear that they weren't going to be able to compete in that space. In 2012, Kazuo Hirai was promoted to CEO. He replaced Sir Howard Stringer. And Harai attempted to reunify Sony's strategies and get the company on more stable ground. The previous two decades had been pretty volatile for Sony financially. Uh, They had had very variable results year over year. So they were trying to get things to settle down. In 2014, Sony would sell off its VIO PC division, it was a big, big news for Sony to get out of that space. And they also, in 2014, spun off its TV division into its own corporation. So again, it was kind of an idea of of let's let the TV division be its own thing where it's not worried about what the rest of the company is doing. They can focus on creating the best television sets with the newest innovations unhindered by the rest of the company. That was the the philosophy behind it. As for VIOPC, I assume it was just one of those things where it was a division that the company just felt didn't fit into the new vision of what Sony would be all about. Now we get up to 2016, this year, the year I'm recording this. If you're listening to this after 2016, hello from the past. In 2016, PlayStation would release the PSVR, that's the virtual reality system for the PlayStation, And so it entered into the competitive virtual reality field, incredibly competitive right now because you've got big names like the Oculus Rift and the HTC Vive that have been uh, trying to make VR a consumer reality for several months before the PSVR came out. Uh, Just before I came in to record this section, Sony announced that it was selling off its battery business as well as readjusting its profit estimate for 2016, adjusting it downward. For the fiscal year, so at this point, Sony is still uh, looking at a 2.6 billion dollar profit at the end of the year, but originally they were looking at closer to three billion. So it's been it's been a rough year for Sony in 2016, in the sense that they're not performing as well as they had hoped. They're still making a profit. It's not like they're losing money in 2016, but they're not doing as well as they had hoped originally. The PSVR is one of their strategies that they're really hoping will help carry the company forward. This, uh, you know, really investing in the video game and entertainment aspects that Sony is involved in. And PSVR has a pretty good chance of doing really well. Cause when you think about it, the PlayStation VR depends upon the PS4, of which there are millions out there already. If you want to get a VR headset, like the Oculus Rift or the HTC Vive, you need a PC capable of running VR programs at a fast enough frame rate and high enough resolution uh, so that you get the experience you want. That can be pretty expensive. I mean, the headsets alone are several hundred dollars. And then the PC you need to run the headsets may be anywhere from $800 on up. So when you combine the two you could be looking at between $1,500 and $2,000 just to run VR using these headsets. If you already own a PS4, the only thing you have to invest in is the PSVR, which is still several hundred dollars. It's not like it's super cheap. But it's less money than buying an all-new system and an all-new headset. If it can run on your existing system, then you can end up at least not spending extra money. Now, granted... If you want to use the full uh, setup, you also have to have a Sony i camera and the Sony Move controllers, which you may have to purchase if you didn't buy uh, a bundle that had those in them, then you'll have to buy those as well to get the full PSVR experience. Not every game uses those. Some of the games use just a regular controller and they don't use the the eye uh, camera or the motion controllers at all. But some of them do use those motion controllers. Um, I've heard varying things about the PSVR. I've heard that it's the lightest headset out of all the VR headsets out there. So it's the most comfortable to wear for the longest amount of time, but the, the resolution is lower and that the motion tracking of the eye camera leaves a lot to be desired. So you have some performance issues with them. Uh, I don't know that firsthand cause I haven't tried it, but that's just what I've read and heard on various podcasts. So uh I don't know. If you've had experience with a PSVR, you should let me know what it was like. If you loved it, if it was great, I'd love to hear that because I'm only hearing one side so far. I know some people really love it, but that's not the, the, not the people who have been doing the podcast I've been listening to. Um, but it is interesting to see a big company get involved like that. And maybe that will end up creating the virtual reality experience that ends up being the killer app. Because right now, I don't think VR has had that. So that's it. That brings us up to speed on the Sony story. And like I said, it's huge. It sprawls. Uh, There's so much more we could talk about. We could talk so much more about Sony music or Sony Pictures or Sony Interactive Entertainment. And again, maybe one day we will. But that depends largely on you, the audience. If you want to hear more about any of those in the future, don't worry. I'm not going to do them immediately after this one. I'm going to cover totally different topics so that we can, you know, cover all stuff tech, not just one company. But if you ever want to hear more about those topics in particular, let me know. Or if there's any other technology topic you would like me to cover, let me know. You can email me. The email address is techstuff at com, or you can get in touch with me on social media. I am on Facebook, and I'm on Twitter, and I have the handle techstuffhsw. That's h s w at both of those. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do so there, and I look forward to hearing from you, and I will talk to you again really soon.